0: In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. This is God's Word. We are in the middle of a series here at Mission. This, uh, this sermon can definitely be understood outside of it. Uh, but we're talking about the foundational beliefs of the Christian faith. And because we are good planners, uh, we were able to uh, put the resurrection as a foundational belief right on Easter Sunday. Look at that. We did it. And uh, and it all worked out. So we are approaching the resurrection from that specific angle uh, today. So maybe not the, uh, the sermon that would try to prove the resurrection or something of that nature, and I'll, I'll get into that a little bit but one that kind of shows how how critical it is to a coherent uh, belief system. So I hope that that's helpful for you today. Before we jump into it, I'm going to lead us in a prayer uh, shaped around the Lord's Prayer, but also influenced by uh, by this scripture this evening. So if you would join me, let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are the Spirit who's given us meaningful life in this world. You dwelt bodily here with us in Jesus. You give life, and you are our eternal life. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As on the days your disciples mourned and went into hiding as your body lay in the tomb, so we struggle with hope and to worship while you're not with us. We long for the day when we're no longer fearing death, suffering in our bodies, and in conflict. With one another, the thought that your kingdom will come to earth is a hope that we long to hold on to. Give us this day our daily bread, as we await our redemption. Grant us to feed daily on your provision for our needs, both spiritual and physical, both bread and wine. And forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. For the hope of your resurrection, first enliven the hearts of your disciples who realized. Their failure to bring about your political victory and their lack of faith was overcome by your power over sin and death. May we carry this hope to others and offer your grace to others who don't deserve it, like them and like us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For so-called wisdom and flat-out deception abounds in the world in all directions. May we be shaped increasingly by your revelation of Christ. May we increasingly live out of our resurrection identity, for to you is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So this Friday, we uh, we gathered in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, and you go, wow, you went all the way to Israel. No, we didn't. Um, we just went down past the freeway on Congress, because here in Tucson, we have our own Garden of Gethsemane, which is a park, a city park now, uh, dedicated to the work of Felix Lucero, who's... Uh, life work was dedicated to God. And uh, Lucera was a bit of a modern-day Lazarus, if you will, because he was wounded uh, on a battlefield in World War I and really believed that God had saved his life from death. And as he lay wounded, expecting that he might die, he'd prayed to God and said that if he saved his life, he would dedicate his work and the work of his hands to, to Jesus. And, of course, he, he survived. That's why we have this Garden of Gethsemane. And he promised that he would sculpt. He would be a sculptor because that was his talent uh, for God. His, uh, his first set of works were in Yarnell, Arizona. Uh, Shua and Justine, who were at Good Friday, sent me pictures from there yesterday. Uh, so they, they went and checked it out. And uh, if you haven't heard of Yarnell, don't worry. I hadn't either. Um, but now you, know, you all know more about Arizona than most people but he, uh, he did a, a garden there back in the mountains. And then here in Tucson, though he was homeless and, and suffered, uh, he, he created an amazing array of these sculptures that depict scenes from the life of Jesus. And eventually, like Lazarus in the Bible, though he was saved from death, he, he died, right, in 1951. So that was a, a, an amazing thing to think about, to observe on Friday. Now, on Thursday... Uh, I was picking up some printed cards for the store that I owned. some uh, cards that we're trying out, and it was my first time buying them, and I was I was at the print shop, and there was a guy in front of me, and he was dressed very nice, and the clerk was uh, helping him out and said uh, to him as he left, she said, have a good day, and he said, highly unlikely, and walked out the door, right? Um, and the clerk, a little stunned, you know, and I was like the next one up, and I walked out, and I said, well, I guess it's possible, right? You know, and... She kind of rolled her eyes, and another clerk walked by and said, he's a lawyer." Oh, right. And I know we have law students in our circles, you know, and so don't, you don't have to do that. that that's not your, your fate. But it, it was sad, right? It's this sad moment where uh, the, the going feeling in there was, well, that explains it. Uh, he's a lawyer. Now, here's the question, how could it be that a man who is critically wounded, um, could look to God as he lay dying with a vision of serving him and then do the work of worship for years and years, though being homeless most of the way, um, and, and dedicate his life to God. And, uh, and then a lawyer in our modern day, making solid money, commanding respect, um, would assume that it was highly unlikely that on a given morning at 8 a.m. that he might have a good day, right? How is it that these, uh, that somebody could live such a, such a difficult life and have hope, and somebody could, in a sense, have everything that the world has to offer, right, and not, not even believe he could have a good day. Well, I'm sure there are many reasons, um, but one of the factors in the life of Felix Lucero is that he believed in the resurrection, and why, why do we know that? Um, well, because he's speaking to a man who has died on that battlefield, right? As he lay there wounded and he prays, he's talking to Jesus who he believed had once died on a cross thousands of years before. Um, he's speaking with him, talking to him, putting his hope in him. He must believe that Jesus, at least, had risen from the dead. And so this evening, as we contemplate the resurrection, I, I will assume that many of you know and believe in it. Um, all Christians do, um, and I'll assume that you, you understand that that's where Christians are coming from, first of all. Um, and then I'll assume, even if you're not there, if you're not sure about that yourselves, that you're, you're at least hopeful that it could be true, which is why you decided to come and uh, and listen to this. I'm going I'm to assume that. I'm not going to try to prove to you that it happened. Many have done this. Their work is easy to find. You could read, there's The Resurrection of the Son of God um, by N.T. Wright. Zach, Anglican guy, approved? Yeah, approved by Zach. Um, you could read a, a short article, Kathy Keller's Our, Fairth- Our Faith is Verifiable or It's Nothing. You could Google that. Great little arguments for the actual event. But tonight, I want to explore why believing it um, is foundational and truly is a great source of hope. Why it could inspire a life that, even even if difficult, like the life of Felix Lucero, could be far more rich and meaningful, right? That's, that's what I want to explore. And using tonight the words uh, from the book of Colossians, from the Apostle Paul, And he gives us some very intriguing ideas that he connects to the idea of resurrection, ones that you may not be used to considering. Here are three things that you should consider, according to the Apostle Paul, when it comes to resurrection. First, it is the true underpinning of good philosophy. Number two, it affirms our sense of spiritual connection. And number three, it anchors a sustainable hope. It underpins a true philosophy. It affirms our sense of spiritual connection, and it anchors a sustained hope. What in the world do I mean? Well, let's go. The Apostle Paul warned the Colossian church about philosophy. Why did he do this? He said, See to it, no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He's not condemning philosophy. He's saying, beware of it according to human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. If I were to switch that into a positive and say it positively, it'd be something like this. If you want to be truly wise, which is the aim of philosophy. Philosophy, of course, is the love of wisdom. That's what the word means. If you want to be truly wise and know truth according to God, then you need to understand the death of Jesus and his resurrection. That's what you need to have wisdom uh, and understand the truth. So that today is a surprising statement, and you've probably heard about the opposite for much of your life, if you uh, have been out and about very much. In fact, the going sentiment is that you might think religious people are more foolish and less grounded than non-religious people because of all their nonsense about miracles and spirits and stuff, right? Right? It's a, it can be a strange thing to do, a strange thing to believe. Even as Christians, um, it can be a weird thing to talk about. How many of you, when you were just out and about today, or when you went to the store yesterday, felt totally comfortable telling them that the ham you were buying was meant to celebrate the resurrection of the Son of God from the dead? You know, it's hard to put that out there, as people kind of look at you and go, okay, right? It seems a little weird. And so um, people think it's foolish and less grounded. um, But are we sure? Are we sure that's how it works? Is it really more foolish and less grounded? Um, Think about this. In our culture, specifically, as religion has declined, depression and anxiety have increased. What does this mean? Other things have changed, but those things have most definitely occurred. I was just reading an article that anxiety and depression is significantly spiked in the lives of teenagers. Interestingly, the pandemic didn't change the trajectory at all, it's been on the same trajectory for a while. And this particular author said, you know, you could chalk it up to a lot of things, social media is in there and all this other stuff. But the biggest difference that he could come up with was that their parents did not feel secure, that they were anxious people, and that they were disconnected from meaningful narratives and institutions through which their children could feel grounded and a sense of hope and meaning and know what to do with their lives. So because of the disconnectedness, anxiety of the parents, the children were growing up under that and having a new and unique experience. So perhaps the religious people aren't so crazy. I mentioned a few weeks back that there's the alternate approaches, which would be the Woody Allen approach, and Woody Allen, of course, the, the famous uh, you know, film producer, who is very bleak, and he, he'll say just straight out, everything's meaningless, and, and it's going nowhere. There's no hope, um, he'll tell you. And, and he says, look, just scientifically, uh, we are born to die. It means nothing. All your work will go down the toilet, uh, just like everybody else's, and your life is absolutely pointless. But almost every time he gives these kind of interviews, he'll say, but I realize you can't live your life like that. Um, or else you won't get anything done. So you just have to lie to yourself, act like the magic exists, and get back to work, right? This is, this is the idea. So he seems to betray to some degree that you can actually live by, by the philosophy that he owns. I mean, he basically says, my philosophy cannot motivate you to live reasonably, so you have to just fake it, right? So if philosophy is the love of wisdom and a good philosophy answers life's questions, it would lead you to the opposite of that, to consistency, right? To hope, morality, peace, and goodness. And why why would a good philosophy lead to that? Well, it's just the basic tenets of philosophy. Here you go. What what are they? Epistemology, understanding knowledge, um, finding finding answers to questions that you ask. That that is the first big heading of philosophy. Um, we, when we were beginning this series of foundational beliefs, we, we said that our first foundation as Christians is that God actually exists and speaks and tells us who he is, gives us information. Interestingly, the very you know, foundational school of philosophy says you need information and answers, and that's exactly what the Bible says God starts with. That's helpful. That actually you know, works. The second. School of philosophy is metaphysics, um, what's beyond the physical, the first principles, the spiritual realities behind things, you know, where you could get your reasons and your hope and the what and how to live, the aim, you know, as, as opposed to just the mechanics. That's the second school of philosophy. Um, Christianity absolutely um, speaks to those. It's kind of what it's all about, right? The third layer of philosophy is ethics, um, based on your reasons for life. How then should you live toward God and others, or in other words, how are you? How do you become a moral person? Right. The fourth is politics, based on that morality. How do we live in community? How do we share a city? That's what politics means. It's the how do you share a city? How do you live at peace with others and God, and uh, and live in an orderly way? And finally, the next layer of philosophy is aesthetics, the study of art and beauty, which is the idea that goodness flows from a right understanding of God, morality, and politics, and true beauty. It, you know inspires and encourages the well-reasoned life, that it all kind of works together, it, it clicks, the gears turn, they move, they work together. And so, what kind of system of belief and what kind of hope would you need to have such a coherent philosophy? Perhaps, when you see someone, even though they don't have any of the things of this world, like a Felix Lucero who's living in a tent under the Congress Street Bridge, When you see someone like him actually creating beautiful aesthetic art, perhaps he is living out of the fifth and final school of philosophy, building um, beautiful, meaningful things because he understands some really important things about life. And when you see a wealthy and powerful man with no hope to even have a good day starting at 8 a.m., perhaps you found someone with a poor philosophy of life right? That might be what we're observing. And perhaps his philosophy of life, I, I don't know, maybe it's the one bad day he ever had, but I don't think so. I don't think so, right? Perhaps it was built on more of the elemental spirits of the world that Paul was talking about. What are, what are those, right? Well, I mean, you might amass knowledge, make money, create a secure life, believe that only the strong survive, and just get done your work, you know, and, and succeed and but don't get your hopes up right and those are kind of the prevailing ways of living and what does it lead to a good and truthful philosophy leads you to hopeful and good conclusions and it answers life's questions in such a way that that requires that you believe in goodness joy and hope in other words it makes sense of human longings and leads you to live fully as a person. I just got done re- reading a book called The Day Metallica Came to Church, um, and I was really disappointed. I'm just going to say that Metallica didn't actually come to the guy's church. Um, their video crew did. That's close, but, um, you know, anyway, the title got me. But uh, but the idea of his book is it's about engaging with imagination and creativity, and he had preached a sermon on a Metallica song, and they came and videotaped it. their uh, their, their video team, which was interesting. But he had a chapter on children's stories in there. And he basically was saying that children love stories that connect them to things like dreamlike worlds, right, to higher planes of reality where people might fly or come back to life. And truly, adults like those things too, right? There's a reason. Um, the, the movies of like flying people and Spider-Man and stuff have uh, all of us, you know, showing up or some of us. I know others are like, I'm not into superheroes. But for the, rest, for the rest of you who don't go to movie night at our church, right, you're into it. And and those films like that have these layers, right? I mean, these, these superhuman capabilities and even, you know, life after death and, and things like that, they all show up there. Why, why is it that we like those things in fantasy literature and video games? What, what is it that draws us into these otherworldly situations, right? Why why are we drawn to them? Years ago, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a a little essay, and he called it on fairy stories, and he talked about the the necessity of stories like this that people, especially when they're they're young, love the idea of eternal life and other worlds. And his reasoning for that, he says, you want to know why? It's because there are other worlds. There is eternal life. We don't long for and dream about things that are foolish. It's kind of like his friend C.S. Lewis's um, same point when he speaks about you know, water. He says you know, that, that we thirst because there's water. We don't thirst and desire things that don't exist. We thirst for that which is, right? And we tend to write these things off as childish, but what if when we were children we were more wise, right? Didn't Jesus say, become like little, little children? And he most definitely didn't say, become immature. He was talking about something else. Perhaps he was inviting us to believe what the resurrection invites us to believe, that there is actually a source of all good and loving things, that there is a path to that which is right and good, to peace, and there is an experience of beauty and goodness. And in fact, there's more of it and an internal perfect version of it that stands before us one day. And the resurrection would speak to something like this because it's the explosion of all of these realities in the midst of the human experience. I mean, think about John 1, 1 through 5. This is Jesus' disciple. Think about these words in light of what I'm saying right now. He says, in the beginning was the word. Interestingly, the Greek word there is logos, which is the philosophical term for for logic and knowledge, right? In the beginning was the, was the philosophy, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that light, that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he goes on to say that that light, that, that word pitched its tent and came in and dwelt Here with us in Jesus. And the resurrection is the capstone, the end of that experience, the last thing we've seen of that life that came into the world. It blew, it exploded right into our human experience. Maybe you wonder about these things, and the prevailing wisdom tells you something like, you know what? Don't get your hopes up, assess the options until you find certainty, until you find the perfect argument. And then maybe you can believe in something. But Paul invites us into far more because you can only truly assess a belief system by believing it, entering into it, and knowing the founder. You can't just look for answers, you look for a spirit you can actually experience and know. Which leads to my second idea here and what the Apostle Paul says it affirms our sense of spiritual connection. Think about these words, um, reframe just a little bit. Just think about this in, in light of our desire for a spiritual connection that the resurrection affirms. For in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. That's a profound statement of spiritual experience. You have been buried with him in baptism. You have been raised with him by the powerful working of God, and the fullness of God dwells in you. I mean, that's that's an incredible spiritual experience, right? And though religious systems aren't currently in vogue, being spiritual and expressing your connection to spiritual things is no longer looked down upon. It really isn't. Um, This is a thing that I I hear constantly. I mean, I don't know how many coffee shops I've been in recently where somebody was like reading their tarot cards or something of that nature. I mean, the idea of spiritual experience is extremely popular. And it it was once looked down upon in the height of modernism. It was all science and tech, not feelings and intuition. Um, and, And that's what you were supposed to put your hope in. But we've seen that science and tech are as liable to being used for evil as like curses and hexes, right? We've seen that it's not safe. So now many are reopening their hearts to spiritual encounter and just very hesitant to define where it comes from. I was just talking with a friend and he said, I know things happen for a reason. He was talking about something that happened this past week where he he, he showed up to something, it worked out, it made sense. And he said, I know these things happen for a reason, but I'm not old-fashioned. You know, I don't know what it's all about kind of this dual statement of, I know there's a reason behind everything, but uh, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to nail it down. Now, Paul shows no such hesitancy. You may say, well, yeah, Paul did that back when everybody believed in the Bible, right? Um, well, surprise, nobody believed in the Bible back when Paul was walking around, not any more than now, probably less than now, um, in fact, he was writing this in the context in which Christianity was the smallest religious sect um, and it was in which it was socially risky to affiliate with it and politically preposterous because Caesar was actually considered a god. The people of Paul's day were actually a lot more like us and our friends in that they were somewhat polytheistic. They believed in a multiplicity of gods. And if you think about it, and, you know, my friend the other day and so other many people, uh, people who say, look, I believe there's a higher power, but I don't know who it is. And it really, you know, it just speaks to me. I, I saw another post recently where somebody said, I have a higher power. It only speaks to me, right? I mean, that, that is essentially an idea of, of polytheism. There are many gods or, or personal gods or expressions of gods that are just for me. And in that very kind of situation in which it was not um, it was possible popular or reasonable, Paul actually said we can get very specific. I can tell you about a God who is noble, who can bridge the gaps that divide us, who can affirm any of us, any group of us, but also critique any of us. He's beyond all of us. He speaks to all of us. We all come before the one and the same God. And and you must understand that Paul's on to something when he declares a God like that, because you've only found the one true God if that God can and does critique you while also loving you, right? If you find a God that says to you what you and your friends would say, you've most likely discovered your idol made in your image, actually. And you don't want that. You don't. Beware of that. Paul presents to us a God who became one of us, in whom the fullness of deity dwelt, who's the head of all rule and authority. I mean, this is These are huge statements. He's the first cause, the first principle, and that God, he says, is also the God of history fulfilling promises. This isn't a new God. This is the same God of history fulfilling promises. And why do I say that? Because he talks about circumcision. If you've come to mission um, in the last couple years, you're like, man, these people talk about circumcision all the time, right? And it just happens to be the the particular (laughs) Bible books we've been in, but it sure can feel like it. But anyway, I say this, when you see Paul referencing circumcision here, in this case, he's saying circumcision is a sign of inclusion into the people of God. And Jesus is God in the flesh coming. He's giving you a circumcision that goes beyond the flesh. It applies to the heart. It's applicable to anyone. It's a sign now of inclusion for all nations, all genders. It no longer is just applied to a certain narrow group. It is a a sign of inclusion that's bigger and more inclusive, but it's exactly what he promised to Abraham, the great patriarch would always be the case, that his children would be innumerable, that he would build his family, that he would build his nation. This was an expected expansion of God's grace out to more and more people. To all who would just look to Jesus as the one who has died in their place, anyone who would look to him can participate in his death and burial and therefore in his resurrection. Now, this means a lot of things, but one thing it most definitely means is that when we sense spiritually and experientially, that we want a connection to God, to other people throughout history, to people in our family, to friends, to the creation itself, that what we are hoping for actually is something that God has been promising all along. And it's bigger than our historical moment. It's outside and beyond ourselves. It's not just kind of a pipe dream of you and your friends. It's actually something that God has been talking about through all of history, And therefore, is something actually worth believing in and considering. Tim Keller, in an interview with the New York Times this week, said, though it can be hard to believe in Jesus' resurrection, once you do, it makes all sort of things possible that you'd always hoped were true. Right? Isn't that beautiful? If God entered in, died, and rose from the dead, all sorts of things you hoped were true are actually possible. Our desire that God would be near to us is true. Our desire to, to live beyond the limitations of this life is a good desire. It's not just a foolish desire. Our desire of connection to other times and places points to a reality, not a fiction. Our desire to be reunited with those we love or didn't even know is something we can entertain and hope for, not just console ourselves when we're grieving. And our desire to achieve more than our frail human capacities allow is pointing to a new creation in which we will continue to serve God and love one another. Does that sound good to you? Right? It does, for a reason, because it's the aim of this creation. And the resurrection of the Son of God is a signpost to us that it's true and it's coming, which leads to this final consideration. The resurrection anchors an actually sustainable hope. We need hope. We're in a world that needs hope. And Paul says, you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, the powerful working of God. Now, what I didn't tell you about that Keller article was the occasion for the article is that he's dying of stage four cancer. That's why they interviewed him. Uh, it's a death sentence. It's pancreatic. He, he will probably die and die soon, right? And we all die, but, but he acknowledged this is sooner than he thought, right? Um, and for many of us, that will be the case. Uh, you can do a number of things with news like that, and it's, it's always a time to grieve. I'm sure Tim Keller, um, being you know great pastor and all that, but I'm sure he grieved. I'm sure he and his wife wept. But what else can you do with it when you have an anchored hope? Uh, when they asked him, they said, what have you done since you got your diagnosis? He, he said, well, the, the words that I wrote in my journal were focus and know the Lord, um, and that he felt drawn out of his head out of just the theoretical, to actually spend time like walking and communing with Jesus in deeper ways. Um, and by focus, he means that he decided to, to limit himself to doing the most important things um, in life that he had often been distracted from doing. Um, and he wanted to become more encouraging uh, to other people. I mean, what if, what if you could do that with that kind of news, right? The most profound thing he said in the article is, he said, my wife and I have never been happier in our lives, even though now we're living under the shadow of cancer. And I know in our circles, in my own life, um, we've, seen, we've seen things like this. My dad died of cancer years back, and I've spoken about that a lot here. And, and we've seen people ending better near their death than they, than they even you know, imagined that they could. And you can do that out of a desire to leave a better legacy or, or something like that, but the best version is when you have hope when you have peace and you're ending your life closer to God than ever before because you know you're going to see him face to face, not out of dread, but out of anticipation. My dad was always a man of doubts and uncertainties. He was a really good example of someone who chose to walk with God without feeling ever that he was really sure about it all. Um, I would ask him, and I only asked him a couple times, but I would say, Dad, uh, you know, do you feel pretty confident in your faith? And he'd say, no. Um, he would be like, how could you? It's really complicated. Um, and, but at the same time, I would see him almost every single day. He would get his Bible out and read it, and, and he prayed pretty consistently and was always uh, encouraging and, and exhibited a lot of Christ-shaped behavior, right? And so I asked him in his last days when I knew, you know, we were down to maybe about a week or so, um, I just said, what do you pray about now? And he just kind of sighed and he said, well, what more can you say? Come, Lord Jesus. And I think as it was closer, he just wanted Jesus to come and get him, to be infinitely close. And interestingly, my mom and I saw that he was suffering from the cancer, and we prayed um, one night. We both checked our notes. We both prayed that night. Can you just take him? Um, and he went up to use the restroom, sat in his bed, and died instantly. And he was supposed to die um, more slowly than that. And it felt like that's exactly what Jesus did, Right? But now, it isn't just about near-death experiences like Felix Lucero or Tim Keller or my dad, because Paul says to the Christian, you were raised with him. Not just you will in the future, like you can hope in death, but you you already were. Like that reality, that, that hope is yours now. It's something that you can taste of and begin living out of today. Um, the resurrection holds the greatest hope of all, perhaps, to those who can see they haven't done so well in this life. It's for the ones who lie, who cover up things they don't want to deal with, who, who know that they shouldn't, but they do. You know, For those who haven't loved like they should, for the selfish, for the cheaters, the swindlers, the failures, the screw-ups. It's for people like the Apostle Paul, who not only didn't believe in Jesus for some time, but adamantly opposed it and hated it, and killed Christians, right? It's for doubters like the disciple Thomas and deniers like the disciple Peter. It's for those who've actually turned their backs on and betrayed Jesus like Judas. Now, you know Judas didn't get cast away by Jesus, right? Jesus served him, his body and blood like everyone else. Judas just thought he was too far gone to be saved, and he was wrong. Nobody's too far gone, because Good Friday's cross was Jesus dying for sinners. Paul was worse than Judas. Paul killed a number of Jesus' people, and when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus, he said, why are you persecuting me, right? Why have you been killing me, is how Jesus felt about Paul. Jesus died for those who betray him and killed him. From his cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. That means that when Jesus rose from the dead, he was offering his life and his spirit to anyone. It's it's never too late. God can turn around any life. The writer of our scripture this evening is the proof of it. Paul, the murderous persecutor, becomes the sacrificial martyr who pours out his life like an offering. and was so deeply changed that he spent the rest of his life imitating Jesus, loving his enemies, and suffering for others, um, none of you in here are beyond this. You can begin to live out of the resurrected life now. And it's not always that dramatic. It's not always the murderer, right? Because you might go, you know, I don't really have a, a story like that. I mean, for me, I had one of my big life issues is my emotions felt turned off. It seriously felt I had my best friend died when I was in my 20s, I heard about it at work. I knew it was huge and catastrophic, but I seriously, I got the phone call, hung up and I just stood there. And I thought, okay, okay, what do I do? And no tears came, I didn't really feel concerned. I went to the funeral and everybody's crying and I like wanted to. I was like, I can't get there, what's wrong with me? Right, what's, what's going on with my, my heart? Am I, what's, what's happening? And so somebody asked me a while back, they said, have you seen God really at work in your life? And I thought about it, and I thought, wait a second. When my dad died, I was fully emotionally present. I wept, I cried with him, I sat with him. That's because over 10 years, God had been chipping away at the damage in my heart that had caused my emotions to be shut off, and it was painful. It took courage. It it was discussions I didn't want to have. It felt vulnerable and weird. It was dealing with things I didn't want to open up to anybody. But God incessantly worked on me and drew me into those conversations to where when my father died, I could actually be fully present. And the resurrected life, it's not always like the murderer that gets you know, utterly transformed. It, it can be that. But it's also that God can give you hope and, and you know, like changed heart in the midst of something like that in the midst of just kind of that inner struggle that you have that doesn't ever really look bad to anybody. Nobody ever criticized me for that, right? The resurrection means that we have hope, not just in death, but also in life. Uh, There's an old catechism our church affirms, and it asks this question, what's our only comfort? And I love that it says it this way, what's our only comfort in life and in death? Both. And the answer to the question in the catechism is that I'm not my own. But I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for my sins with his precious blood. He's set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me willing, wholeheartedly, and ready to live for him. See, when you see that he's paid for your sins and are grateful for his mercy, and you see that he offers this eternal life uh, even now, it can give you this sense of hope that you can move in with courage, even in the most emotionally confusing um, stuff that you have to deal with, or admitting your sins and your issues. Um, you know, looking at that person that you've offended and said, I, I, I offended you. I, I'm sorry. What do I do? Um, it makes that all possible. It gives you the hope and the courage to do it. So, the resurrection underpins a true philosophy. The resurrection affirms our sense of spiritual connection, and it anchors a a sustainable hope. What a wonderful thing to believe. And Jesus taught and proved that it was true. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, in fact, he took bread from the table right right as Judas is contemplating his act, right, as Peter is on the precipice of denying that he's ever known him, as all the disciples are going to run away. And he takes the bread from the table, he breaks it, that historic bread that pointed back to the Exodus, you know, all the way back to when ancient Israel had been delivered out of Egypt. And he says, this bread that you once used to to celebrate the day I saved you from from Egypt, I'm going to expand it. I'm going to make it mean even more. This is my body broken for you. And then he takes the the wine from the table. And and wine has all kinds of symbolic meaning in the Bible. It can mean anything from wrath to to, uh, just joy and ecstasy. It's the drink of every wedding and every party. Um, And Jesus says, this is my blood uh, poured out for you, poured out for the forgiveness of many. And Paul taught us that's how we proclaim his death until he returns. And his resurrection is a sign that he'll do just that. And Jesus said the next time that he would drink wine with us would be in his kingdom. He said when he comes back, when he returns to make things new, to finish the work that he started, he'll sit with us and throw a party. What a hope. Wouldn't it be beautiful if it were true that the resurrection signals that it is? Right now, I'm gonna pray for us and gonna leave a, a time of confession for you, two minutes, uh, just to sit before God and ponder these things. If there's anything you need to bring to him, admit to him, um, any just little word of, of faithful, um, you know, just giving your heart to him, you could, uh, you could ask him any question. You can just sit before him, you can even tell him how you struggle in your faith. Whatever you need to do, uh, take this two minutes. And then uh, the Lord's table is, is set. Jesus is our host. This is his body and his blood. I'll be there to steward this to you, but it really is his grace. And how do, you, how do you receive it? By faith. All you have to do is just say, I trust you, Jesus, even if you believe it just a little bit. If you don't, if you're not there yet, you can observe, and we totally respect that. This is precious to us, and we just appreciate that you're here. So after I pray, we'll sing together, and I'll uh, I'll steward this supper to you before we all join in a dinner that, of course, everyone's invited to. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to to be here gathered together and to contemplate the resurrection. It's such a, it's such an unbelievable thing. It's unbelievable because it can only happen through you. It's only a God possible event. We could never do something like it. We could never recreate it. And so as we stand before you, as we contemplate um, who you are, our God, our creator, we submit that resurrection is only something possible for you. And we also lay before you the longings of our souls that we want these things to be true. We want to have this kind of hope and we pray that you would instill it deeper and deeper in our hearts. Give us the courage to walk into faith even when we're not sure and forgive us of all the ways that we've turned on you, neglected you, and others. Give us your grace. Give us hope in the power of your resurrection. Lead us now as we make our confessions to you.